Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist System. Hey everybody, I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And today we are very excited to have on Dr. Kurt Jensen and Dr. Tom Mayer. Thank you both for coming on the program. Our pleasure. And let's start with uh, Kirk. Can you just tell the audience just a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, in emergency medicine, uh, trained at the University of Chicago. I also obtained a, a mid-career MBA from the University of Tennessee. Um, I have extensive experience with uh, operations and patient flow in a wide variety of emergency departments and hospital settings. I spent a fair amount of time uh, working with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement on hospital-wide and emergency department flow. Tom and I have worked extensively um, with each other for decades and have co-authored, depending upon how you count, approximately four books together on operations. Well, thank you so much for coming. And, and Tom, can you introduce yourself? Sure, it's Tom Mayer. I'm an emergency physician and pediatric emergency physician. I uh, am the medical director for the NFL Players Association and executive vice president for leadership for Logics Health. And as Kirk said, he and I have both had an interest for decades in how you get better at what you do well. And um, it's been a joy working with Kirk. He and I co-founded a group called Best Practices, which probably fits with the uh, thrust of your uh, podcast, as Tom Peters said to me once, you know, Mayor, you call our group best practices. You got a lot of nerve, uh, but, I, but I think we operated <laughs> on that. Well, well, Kirk and Tom, once again, thank you so much for being here. And we always love having physicians uh, on our podcast. And and I was I was really excited that you guys were coming. And, and I have a little story to tell. And, and and you know how when you're at the at the grocery store and you may run into somebody that you uh, that you know at the checkout line and you have your buggy and while you guys are talking you're kind of glancing in their buggy and they're kind of glancing in your buggy and you can tell you, you you're you're interested in in what what the other person might be buying and uh penny allison is our she's our ed director and i believe you guys have have maybe she said she worked with you guys on a project when she was at region one which was called the med here in memphis several years ago i think it was called project urgent matter or something like that yep. anyway penny is always reading uh interesting books and i'm all when i'm when i'm around penny i'm always kind of eyeballing the stack of books that she has uh that she's carrying around with her and and one of the books several months ago caught my eye. It was it was your your book Hardwiring Flow, and I asked her. I said, "Tell me tell me about this book." And and so she she told me about you guys. And, and I think later on that day, I went to Amazon and, and bought it. And uh, it, it really is an interesting book. And, and especially here at Desoto, where I work, our ED for the size hospital that we have, we have a very, very, very busy ED. And we have been doing a lot of work and a lot of things to try to increase our flow. But from a from a healthcare perspective, a lot of people, we, we talk about flow, but sometimes we don't really know what flow is. And, and I would like you guys to expound on how you guys define flow in healthcare, if you don't mind. Tom, go ahead. 
Well, Kirk is, uh, if you've not discovered already, is uh, by far the more cerebral of the uh, pair that you have on here. Um, Just and, like Jake is with with us. You, you know, I'll, I'll let him give, um, <clears throat> give the, the more clear definition, but a simple one is to stop doing stupid stuff and start doing smart stuff. And by mm. that, I mean, you know, Kirk and I both believe in, in a lean approach to adding value and eliminating waste. And a lot of the stuff we do in healthcare is stupid stuff that creates waste instead of value. And uh, we need to get away from that. We need to stop, stop doing that stupid stuff and start doing smart stuff, um, which adds value. So Kirk, you can build on that. Yes. So, and so what, what I would add is um, from an operational standpoint, it's the movement of people and information through a system. And in, uh, in our work, um, all of us, we tend to focus on the movement of patients and patient-related information through the system and, and how to best do that uh, efficiently. And then separately, it's also, um, if you've read the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, um, he was a University of Chicago operations management professor, and he talked about this concept of flow and, and getting lost in the work. You're so engrossed in what you're doing that you lose the passage of time. So when we think about hardwiring flow, it's both about the movement, the effective and efficient movement of our patients and their information through the healthcare system, but it's also about building a healthcare system where our healthcare providers can get lost in the work. You know, the mission, the reason we got into medicine, whether it's physicians, nurses, physician assistants, and we can get lost in the, the true work, the true north, so to speak, and not get sidetracked by all of the healthcare inefficiencies. And separately, I, I think one of the problems we run in, we all run into collectively when we're talking about flow and, and movement through a system, it's not rushing people through. It's not working frantically every minute of the day. It's stripping out, as Tom would say, the stupid stuff and focusing on the, the materials and operations that really matter. And, and, and that, that's, that was going to be my next question is flow. And, and, and according to what you said, flow doesn't actually if you're increasing flow or improving flow, it doesn't actually mean improving the times. Right. And, and I think that's that's where we get tripped up sometimes. Yes. And, and it's about making the work, the delivery of healthcare, easier, not more difficult. And, well, and, and it's and also around that issue of, of creating value. So mm -hmm. if I'm a doc, if I'm a nurse at the bedside, I want to I want to think about uh, is what I'm doing creating value? Or is it creating waste? Um, and if if not, why not? And if so, why continue to do it? Because it's not just how much time you spend, it's how you spend the time. So I think some people uh, think flow is faster, faster, faster. And that's not necessarily the case. The, the, the flow is really better, 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 smarter, smarter, smarter. So I have a lot of questions, but but first, I just wanted to say how impressed I am, Kirk, with your pronunciation of, of Mihai's last name. I, mean, I don't think I've ever heard it said out loud, so that was that was good. I'm gonna have to re-listen to this so I can actually. Mihai Mihai used to give the uh, University of Chicago students a mnemonic. It's slowing down. It's chicks 
sent me high. Okay. Yeah, I think I can get high. that now. Okay. Then. That's a that's an easy one to remember too. Um, you know, so, so we're talking about uh, ED flow, and we've had a couple of episodes on this in the past. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had Betty Gardner on talking about Friday night at the ER, her her game. Um, but sometimes, I guess, and we'll start with this. Uh, you know, when we think about uh, the problem of patients bedded in the ED without a bed or, or waiting long waiting lists in the ED, uh, a lot of us or a lot of people would think, oh, this is an ED problem that the ED needs to fix. Uh, can you talk about just a little bit how, you know, how the uh, other parts of the hospital influence ED flow and just what all components are, are tied together that make this such a thorny problem to unravel? That's a very deep problem. Um, and let me uh, get started with that first. Um, or take the first step at that. So to be somewhat glib, the uh, and then we'll go deeper. If you're looking at um, ED boarding and patients being boarded in the emergency department, that's a situation where the problem is upstairs, but the pain is downstairs. So it's really a hospital operations problem. And there are a number of studies that have been done, in, um, including some by uh, uh, friends and associates of ours, that have looked at, so if you look at ED, if you look at ED diversions, so diver, going on diversion as a marker for the ED being temporarily dysfunctional. So if you use that as a metric, and then if you look at the causes, people have looked at, is it walk-in volume? Is it slow physicians and nurses? Or is it boarding patients in the ER. And the number one cause, the major cause of diversions is boarding patients in the ER. And technically, and while we accept the idea that as emergency physicians and nurses and clinicians, we are always willing to take care of those patients being boarded in the ER, technically they are inpatients and mm -hmm. outpatient beds. So to solve for that problem, you have to solve for the problem of hospital-wide patient flow. And the, the paradox is, is that's an enormous problem with enormous opportunity. And the only way to solve for that problem is to appreciate the healthcare as a system, not as a set of silos, each, work, each working off and on their own metrics and their own budgets, but as an interconnected series of operational centers that need to work together and coordinate together. Tom? Yeah, and to build on that, foot stomp that, the, first of all, I, I trained in theology before going into medicine, and I learned that all language has meaning and all behavior has meaning. And when you call a border an ED border, that's number one, inaccurate. And number two, as we used to say to our um, sons we had uh, three wonderful sons now young men but when they were younger and they were doing something they ought not do you know we'd look at them and say what's that smell i think it's your soul burning in hell <laughs> and i think that's what happens when you call someone who is in the emergency department not through any fault of the emergency department and its wonderful team an ed border and you're saying it's your problem well, they're hospital borders. So number one, let's start with the right taxonomy. And number two, we, we hear so much, you know, say team versus play team. 
and team, 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 oh yeah, we're all together in this. And yet, you know, the folks who uh, are responsible for clearing beds upstairs are not held accountable for getting those beds clear. You know, Kirk and I have both had the experience of saying, okay, how do you change that? Well, number one, have the nursing supervisor come down to the emergency department as soon as somebody is admitted to the hospital, admitted in name, not in uh, getting upstairs, and, and look them in the eye and say, I'm running this hospital. I'm responsible for getting you a bed. I will get you a bed. When you do that simple change of, of responsibility, you play team, not just say team, they find beds because it's personal. It's not a number on the bed board. Uh, it's a face-to-face -face conversation. So it's more complex than that, but you have to start somewhere and, and, and taxonomy and, and mutual accountability are, are a good place to start. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize, and it can get lost in this conversation, especially when it's a short conversation with people who are passionate about this subject. This, this We're never implying that there are people on the inpatient side that don't want to get those patients upstairs or are somehow saying that's just an ER problem. But what we are sort of implying is that each of us, wherever, whatever unit we're working in the hospital, we can get lost in our own you know, mini environment and focus uh, at times appropriately just on what's going on in our own environment. And separately, those people in the ICUs, post-surgical uh, units, hospital floors, they're all working hard too. And then if we back up even further, you, you, you note the observation that Peter Drucker once made, probably the, one of the foremost management theorists in history, the hospital is the most complex organization ever devised. So that's part of what we're up against. The flip mm -hmm. side of this, when we solve for this, when we solve for demand capacity, when we take into account the implication of queuing, when we understand the impact in, in variation, when we solve for those things, we open up all kinds of capacity that then allows us to deliver the kind of healthcare and services we're all after. And that's yeah, I, I learned from Kirk that you know all all healthcare is a complex adaptive system, and yet we don't treat it as a complex adaptive system often. And I can give you a very simple example that you've uh, probably both seen uh, to the point you made earlier, HF, is it just faster, faster, faster. Numerous ICUs focused on length of stay, you know, get them out, get them to step down and thought, well, this is great. And our metric got better. And what happened? Well, there were bounce backs. There were people who weren't ready to come out of the ICU who were uh, had, had to be readmitted to the ICU. And, and that's not better. That's not stopping stupid stuff. That's focusing on a metric instead of what adds value and what eliminates waste. Talk, talking about the hospital borders or ED borders, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, it seems like sometimes these people are in no man's land. You know, they're not they're not they're not treated like ED patients exactly. And they're not treated like inpatients exactly from a quality standpoint. All things being equal, if you have two patients same condition, one's an ED border and one is is admitted upstairs in, in whatever unit. Are there any studies that show that that these ED borders receive or, or have lower quality scores? Yes, there are multiple studies. And again, one of the paradoxes, 
when we when we are personally taking care of those patients, um, and, and whether it's uh, at the bedside or within our healthcare system, um, we're fairly convinced that we're delivering the same level of care because everybody's trying harder, everybody's doing their best. But there are a number of studies that have looked at metrics, proxy metrics for quality of care. Patients that are held in the emergency department average another uh, full day in the hospital on average. Patients that are boarded in the emergency department, time to antibiotics, time to critical medicine, all are delayed. So there's a, there are multiple studies out there that back up what we sort of intuitively already know. While we are delivering the best care that we can to patients that are being boarded, it's the not the same level of care of care when those patients are placed in the appropriate environment. Yeah, borders so, so, are like burnout. Burn, burnout, every measure by which you measure quality, every measure gets worse with burnout. And the same is true of boarding. So boarding and burnout uh, do have the same effect uh, as, as Kirk said. Yep. And, th and the other thing is, you know, start by making it personal, you know, for whether it's the, the chief nursing officer or the chief executive officer, uh, chief medical officer, uh, chief information officer, or the person at the bedside looking at that patient and saying, that was my mom, that was my dad, that was my husband, that was my wife, that was my son, that was my daughter. Would languishing in the emergency department be okay? And the answer is no, it wouldn't be okay. And if it's not okay for our family, then it shouldn't be okay for our patients. Sure. One more thing along those lines, um, you know, we talked about quality. We didn't talk about patient satisfaction, but, uh, you know, just obviously boarding in the ED for a long period of time is going to cause uh, your patient satisfaction to go down. But there's not a great measure on the survey that actually asks about boarding in the ED. But we had a physician on very early that uh, mentioned that, you know, even, you know, some of the questions related to communication with your your team improved when you're, you fix the ED flow. Um, can you talk about just how flow and impacts patient satisfaction? Is there, is there any hope of getting your patient satisfaction scores up into the highest percentile if you're boarding, you know, 50 patients in the ED consistently? Well, the answer is no. And, and first of all, Don Berwick and uh, Arjun Venkatesh and I just wrote a piece in uh, Jam of Viewpoints saying it's time and long past time to get uh, rid of the tyrannical satanic percentile systems. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. a separate issue. It may be a separate podcast. But as, as Kirk and I have shown and others, you know, first of all, I love the fact that it's patient experience as opposed to customer satisfaction or patient satisfaction, because if you think about it, what is their experience hanging out usually in the hallway and for hours, sometimes uh, 24 hours, you're never going to recover from that. And, and that's just yeah. intuitive, but the studies are, are very clear on that. I wanted to, uh, for a little bit, get you guys to talk about value. And, you know, in all the improvement books I've read, it's always about, okay, we're trying to create value <clears throat> for our customer. And in the healthcare setting, we're trying to create value for our patients. But I, I'd always, I didn't know how to define value in, in the healthcare setting. And, and you guys, uh, it was really fascinating to me. You, you, you define value as a ratio between the benefits received and the burden endured. 
which I had never, ever heard anything like that. And, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. But I want you guys to expound on that, if, if you don't mind. Tom, go ahead. Well, you know, Kirk and I both believe that uh, definitions should drive solutions. Any definition which is not uh, framed in such a way that the doctor, the nurse, the tech, all the team members at the bedside cannot say, okay, I know what to do now that I know what the definition is. And that's where we came up with this benefit burden ratio. So whether in the emergency department, ICU, the cath lab, outpatient, no matter where you are, if we can drive our clinicians as well as our leaders in terms of the, the, the folks who, who change the systems and processes, more on that if we have time, to get that sense of how does this benefit the patient and what burdens are they enduring to get through it? So Kirk, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, so I concur with that. Well, obviously we we both feel deeply about that. And I think currently part of the problem is um, value is a great word and an, an important word and an important concept. We need to define value in terms of what's important to the patients. And we need to define value in terms of what's important to the healthcare providers. And I think one of the things that's become lost in our current conversation about value-based delivery is we have, we have numbers, we have metrics, but I don't think deep down we're measuring the right things. And, and I, I don't think we've done a deep enough job dive into what really matters to our patients and what really matters to our healthcare professionals. And separately, I want to uh, sort of circle back on something that might have been a touch misleading earlier. Um, if you're an audience member, I think it is. Tom and I both passionately feel that it is important to personalize the costs being borne in the dysfunctional processes when they are dysfunctional to the people involved in the process. But fixing this is not an individual effort. It's a systems problem. Just like, and you can make an analogy to burnout. Yes, yoga classes and meditation can be an effective tool to help an individual healthcare clinician with burnout, but burnout is a systems um, issue and needs systemic solutions. And it's the same with patient flow. And so to go along with that, as far as the fix for this, it's, I feel like the issue has become much worse over the last two years with um, a lot of staffing shortages. We have, yeah. we just have wings that are, and units that are closed that were previously open that we're not able to move patients to now. How do you, how should systems, um, healthcare systems address the problem or go about addressing this problem in the, in the context of some of those shortages that we have now? Well, let me take a first stab at that and then segue to Tom. I think First, it's recognizing it's recognizing the truth in front of us that we do have a, a a real problem. It's identifying what some of those causes are. It's understanding and appreciate all over again how valuable our healthcare workforce is and what are they looking for. I mean, we used to have, and I think we can still get there. We used to have the most motivated workforce in the world. People went into healthcare whether it's IT or customer relations or bedside delivery, because they were motivated by the idea that they could make a difference in the world. And, uh, and we do and we can. And I think in some ways we've frittered away some of that goodwill because 
of some of the challenges that are in front of us and have been in front of us and COVID worsen that. So we have to recognize that problem and get back to that. And then separately, it's designing our systems so that our healthcare delivery system, so we optimize the performance of our healthcare professionals, not in terms of faster, 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 but what is meaningful work for you? How can you deliver that? And then what can we get rid of and what can we offload? I mean, having healthcare professionals, regardless of their discipline, uh, function as data entry clerks just doesn't make sense. Sure, sure. Yeah, and to, to build on that, you know, the, the, the current nursing shortage that we have is cataclysmic and, and catastrophic and, and will be long lasting. Um, number two, it's impossible to hold people mutually accountable for a system over which they have no control and design a system and keep in mind that the subtitle of hardware and flow is systems and processes for seamless patient care. And when you design a system based on one level of staffing or one level of volume, and then you measure for that and, and it changes radically in terms of staffing, it's not gonna work because the, the systems and processes that worked for a certain volume with a certain level of staffing certainly won't work for a higher volume with lower staffing. And the question becomes, how do you change the system? Because as Paul Battalion said correctly, uh, all systems are perfectly designed to get precisely the results they get. Well, the way you re redesign the system in the current environment is to have the people doing the work redesign the system with the help of, of the leadership team, of course. But the fact is, if they're not with you on the takeoff, they're not going to be with you on the landing. And I think too many systems ignore that. Yeah, I think I mean that is a great point. I mean, you have the same number of patients coming through the ED, you know, yep. give or take, uh, but you have you know 10%, you know, maybe not 10% less staff to take care of those patients on the inpatient side, and you may have already had a, a problem with boarding in the ED even before that reduction in staff. So, getting that reduced staff to just do more work and do it faster is not going to solve your issues. So you really do have to radically redesign the the system. Mm. And you do. And then in uh, in systems that are queuing systems with uh, unscheduled arrivals, um, the emergency department, uh, urgent surgery, unscheduled admissions in queuing systems. If you look at the the exponential curve um, involved in demand, small improvements in capacity can greatly increase access. So it, it, it um, there's so much opportunity for us to make a difference. And Jake, you're an expert in queuing theory, right? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> no, me, me neither. Me neither. But, um, yeah. And on a personal note, I should I, I should say that uh, one of my sons is at, is in nursing school at Duke, so I am doing my best to work on the nursing shortage at multiple levels. Very nice. Yeah, and Tom, Tom, to to change gears a little bit, you know, I know I know I can speak for Jake and Skip. We are we are huge you know, college football fans, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a big NFL fan as well. T talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be, uh, is it the, the medical director of the NFL or? In, uh, no, you know, how, I actually cool am the medical director of the NFL. I'm the medical director of the NFL Players Association, so I work with the good guys. Um, ah, okay. But uh, all puns intended. But yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, 
it's it's unbelievable and uh people ask me how i get my job got my job and how they can get the job and, and the question they always ask is how do i build my resume and i tell them that i got the job because gene upshaw who was then the executive director of the nfl players association was my best friend and Corey stringer uh a tackle for the vikings died of heat stroke on august 1st 2001 uh, and gene said you got to step up to the plate so my answer is you know don't build resumes build relationships and that's what i've spent my 21 years with the nfl players association doing that is that is cool did you ever get to meet fran tarkington since you oh know, yes you look you look a little bit like Fran. <laughs> You really he was one. Of, he I'm was one sure of my favorite. He was one of my favorite players when I was a kid. Sure well, was. Since you look like him, I can see that. I'm sure you <laughs> thought you were going to be Fran. That's right. I I couldn't scramble like he could though. Well, but you know he couldn't rip out gallbladders like you can either. <laughs> That's true. Well, guys, I, I know we only have a a couple of minutes left, and I really appreciate uh, both of you coming on and and for everybody listening to connecting the dots. You know, this is a, a, a very big issue that you know, ED flow and capacity is, is something that everybody's going to be struggling with. Um, you know, for the foreseeable future, it really doesn't look like it is getting any better. So with that in mind, are there any practical tips for health systems that are listening to this of, of where to start uh, with addressing, addressing this? You know, who are the major players you need to bring to the table? What are the first things you really need to do if you're serious about fixing this at your institution? Yeah, I'll take the first stab at that. And it's almost like a syllogism since I trained in, in theology. And that is to say continuous improvement means getting better when you're already good at what you do. And continuous improvement means change. Change means resistance. If there is no resistance, there is no real change. So be prepared to be a change accelerator. And the way to do that is to Make sure they're with you on the takeoff and the landing and understand that there's only one thing in history that has helped people change, and that is intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. Do it because I'm the boss. I say so. Ain't going to work. Do it because it makes my job easier and I get to be the co-author of this new system. That works. Yeah, and I would add on an operational level. Um, the opportunities are so are so great for both uh, patient flow, patient safety, uh, workforce satisfaction that you definitely want to do this work. You're one's going to want a high performance uh, performance improvement team. And then I would start with a fundamental understanding of um, patient demand for services, uh, one's own capacity and then good process flow or value stream mapping. Well, thank you again, and, and thank you, everybody, for listening to Connecting the Dots. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.